Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder on the Space Coast is brought to you by attorney Steve Casanova. Check him out at surferlaw.com. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. This is really, I think, a formula for all these cases. You saw cases that when terrible crime happens uh, and law enforcement doesn't have sort of immediate answers, they center on a person as the potential suspect and then, you know, sort of through tunnel vision, build a case around that person while ignoring signs that they may, in fact, not be the person. I knew his father, I knew his mother, and I knew of Gary because of his criminal activity, the things he was involved in as a juvenile. I never arrested him or uh, had any involvement in an arrest except uh, during the courses of some of the arrests, some of the officers, investigators would come in and talk about it. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to another chapter of Murder on the Space Coast. Okay, so as 1983 winds down, a grand jury indicts Gary Bennett for the murder of Helen Nardi. He has maintained his innocence, told the cops he had an alibi, passed a polygraph test, and his hairs did not match pubic hair left at the scene. The evidence? Well, there is Gary's palm print on a closet door that extends 21 inches into Helen's bedroom. He said he was in her trailer, but could not remember ever being in the bedroom. When that wasn't quite enough, prosecutor Dean Moxley brought in dog handler John Preston, who said his dog, relying on scent, tied Gary to the crime scene. Remember, Helen led a sordid life. She let landlords use her children for sex in exchange for rent and was having an affair with her son-in-law, who was 10 years her senior. Her own husband had been murdered five years earlier when he was beaten by some neighborhood teens and then suffered a heart attack on the way to the hospital. Once again, a warning, murder on the Space Coast is about a murder and things can get graphic. It may not be suitable for sensitive or younger listeners. Remember how I explained in the first episode that I was still reporting while I was writing the scripts for each episode, asking questions, requesting documents, how you're on this journey with me? Well, a few months after starting this project, while rummaging through papers at the Moore Justice Center in Vieira, I came across a folder of stuff that just, well, it blew me away. And I want to get into a little bit of that now. We know that Gary has what he says is epilepsy. He suffers from seizures. We also know that Helen's daughter, Mary, told police to look at Gary as the possible killer because he had, quote, mental problems. We thought she was referring to the epilepsy, which is wrong, of course. But we all know that people make assumptions about anyone who is different. But it turns out she perhaps wasn't too far off the mark. What I learned was that, growing up in West Virginia... 
Gary spent time shuttling from one foster home to another. His parents were alcoholics, and the young boy had a history of running away. At the age of 10, he was hospitalized in a West Virginia state hospital for two years. But that wasn't all. According to various records, Gary tried killing himself twice in 1974 when he was 17 years old. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and antisocial behavior. Then, remember that fire that Gary said he took the fall for? Remember he told me that his buddy had pulled a prank and started a fire outside a drugstore where Gary worked, and that is what got him on police radar? It's the same fire that our crime profiler called a red flag and a possible precursor to future violence. Well, it appears that Gary was not being truthful with me. According to a Palm Bay police report that I discovered, and a handwritten note by Gary himself when he was 19, he admitted setting the fire and breaking a window at a nearby trailer park with a couple of 12-year-old boys. In the note, Gary told police that he needed psychiatric help. His parents agreed. He also told them that he was attracted sexually to small children, girls. Documents I found also suggest that he'd experimented with homosexuality and that he may have experimented sexually with a dog as well. I'm telling you, you can't make this stuff up. After he told police that he was attracted to small children, the Rockledge Crisis Center was contacted and an appointment made. But Gary fled before that and was picked up on the shoulder of a Kansas highway passed out. His father paid for him to come home. I discovered that he had been arrested for homosexual male prostitution in California and New York. Now, I wish I had this info when I traveled up to Chipley and spent several hours over two days interviewing him. I would have called BS on him right then and there when he blamed his friend for the fire and said there was nothing to it. I would have asked him why he lied and why he would leave out the information about seeking psychiatric help. I have written him a letter asking him to explain these things. All that being said, we have to remember that he agreed to take a polygraph exam in the matter of Helen Nardi's murder, and he passed. He agreed to be examined with a rape test kit, and the pubic hairs left at the crime scene do not match his. We also know that there is nothing that ties him to the murder of Helen Nardi except for a partial palm print he left on a closet door, likely, he says, from when he helped her into her home with groceries. We also know the state relied on crooked dog handler John Preston, who said his dog tied Gary's scent to the murder weapons. We know that Preston, who died in 2008, was a liar. Trust me on this, I'm about to explain. But first, remember a few episodes ago when I set out to find Helen's daughter, Mary? Well, I could not track her down anywhere, but I was able to sort of track down the son she had with Kermit Parkins. Kermit Lee Parkins, who was only seven years old when his mother found his grandmother murdered, and he was 10 when his father Kermit passed away. What I did track down were court records from when Kermit Lee asked the court for an order of protection from his mother's new husband. In the affidavit, Kermit Lee, 28 at the time, said that he was disabled and his mother and her husband were taking his social security checks. He said he was abused as well. He had the handwriting of a little child. 
Remember, Mary and her first husband were taking Helen's checks as well and only giving her $20 a week. Reading her son's court papers sent chills down my back. Anyway, back to John Preston. What we don't know for sure is why Preston lied. Was he told what to say, or was he just saying what he thought prosecutors wanted to hear? Either way, New Jersey attorney Paul Castellaro of Centurion Ministries said it was Preston's involvement that drew him to the case in the first place. I mean, the most significant thing in the case is, is, is uh, I think, pretty pretty apparent is, is the is the junk science aspect of it, where they use this uh, so-called uh, dog uh, to to make an identification, which is, I mean, I, I think anybody looking at it today would sit there and say, how preposterous, how is it even possible that this all could have, you know, happened in a courtroom? I mean, it was completely ridiculous that uh, this dog, uh, months later, uh, would have been able to sniff out anything. Um, so, I mean, that was the aspect that obviously interested us was the junk science aspect of it, along with, you know, Gary's very, uh, you know, very clear pleas and uh, statements of his innocence, and uh, we, we thought it was uh, a real pretty compelling case for innocence. Okay, so John Preston, the dog handler. In 1984, he was challenged by a Brevard judge to have his dog perform a simple tracking test. Preston failed, and the judge allowed him to try again the following day. It never happened. Preston left town and was never heard from again in Brevard County. He was also exposed by Geraldo Rivera on television, and the Arizona Supreme Court called him a charlatan and overturned every case that he ever testified in. Here in Brevard, we know for certain that he helped put at least three innocent men in prison. So now it's October 1983, and Gary is waiting at the county jail for his trial. That's when the state's case appeared to get even stronger. They've got the handprint. They've got Gary's scent on one of the murder weapons, apparently. Now, there are two jailhouse informants who said Gary had confessed the crime to them in the jail. I'll be honest, I'm suspicious. Why? Well, it's just too convenient. It follows a formula that the state used to prosecute three innocent men, Juan Ramos, Wilton Dedge, and William Dillon. The same prosecutors, the same dog handler, the same use of jailhouse informants who were rewarded for their testimony. I spoke with Seth Miller of the Innocence Project of Florida about this. Remember, he helped free Dedge and Dillon. And so when you have that situation and you're sort of manufacturing a case of some, uh, against someone who um, may be actually innocent, we now know some of them were actually innocent, you end up having gaps or holes in the case. So then the question is, what do you do? Because you've got to prosecute it. So you take steps to fill in those gaps with evidence that's going to help you secure a conviction. And what we saw in a number of these cases is really um, two key tools for filling those gaps. We saw the use of John Preston, um, the dog handler, who was brought in in these cases, um, paid in cash by the day, had access to law enforcement files, so he knew the facts of cases and could really lead his dog to answers rather than his dog leading him to answers, um, and really just manufacturing evidence. And we saw that in Gary Bennett's case as well as um, Dylan and Dej and Juan Ramos. But what else we saw was that that wasn't enough in many cases. Uh, we also saw that the 
sort of prevalent use of jailhouse informants or snitches, as we like to call them, uh, people who are incentivized or given something to provide evidence against a criminal defendant, usually that they confessed. Uh, when it, and what we find in many cases that that confession, supposedly, that happened never actually happened. And in some of these cases, um, these were repeat snitches. The two jailhouse snitches who said Gary confessed were named Kenneth Plemons and Michael Turner. Of course, I asked Gary about them. Those two jailhouse informants. Yes. Had you ever met them? Had you ever spoken to them? Uh, yeah. What happened was... Kenneth Plemons and... Uh, yeah, Michael Turner. We boiled coffee together. The way things were back then, you would buy coffee off of one of the runarounds. They had what was called stingers. You have to use a stinger in a pot to boil the coffee. So they had a stinger in a pot, and I bought the coffee. So we would always make pots of coffee. And this is at the Brevard County Jail? At the Brevard County Jail. And um, I had no idea that they had contacted the district attorney, and they lied to him and told him that I had confessed to them, which was a damn lie. I never confessed to anybody. In fact, they said, oh, he got up and he was screaming, I've killed once and I'll kill again. When they, everybody else in the uh, thing was questioned about that, nobody heard that except for these two. And, oh, yeah, we heard him on the phone talking about, oh, yeah, well, I cleaned up the mess and I'm pretty sure I got rid of all the beer cans and stuff like that. And what are you talking about? Who the hell? It always bothered me a little bit. Why would anyone confess in the jail while they're waiting for their trial? Exactly. If you're trying to prove yourself innocent. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, there was a letter from Judge uh, Waddell, my judge at the time, had contacted Cheshire and said, uh, excuse me, but... Uh, what are you doing sending uh, guys down there to get uh, information off of these guys and making deals with them? Because they had promised, one, that they, they let him out of jail and said, well, drop charges against you if you testify. And they told the other one, all right, you've already been convicted, so the only thing we can do is make sure you get a lesser sentence. Yeah. And which they turned around and they, they uh, screwed him anyway and said, uh, well, we're going to give you the full thing. I, we, we can't uh, give you a lesser sentence, so we're going to give you the full time anyway. Right, right because that was a, a like rape case or something. Right. I think. Yeah. right. And he's trying to I say that. that yeah. yeah, he was, tra he was trying to say, um, oh, I didn't like the things that Mr. Bennett did and all that. And he's in prison for uh, armed rape himself. Right. And I'd say what? Right. In other words, he was just trying to get out of jail. Cheshire was the former state attorney, Doug Cheshire whose prosecutors were notorious for making deals with inmates. And here was his office trying to reduce the sentence of an armed rapist. But here is where Gary's luck went bad again. I know, you've heard me say that a couple of times already, but it's true. This was like a perfect storm. Gary was assigned public defender Marlena Alva. And he said she was fiery and thorough and confident and challenging everything that the state was trying to get in his evidence. But all that was about to change. Retired Judge Dean Moxley, who was the lead prosecutor in the case against Gary, soon filed a motion in court claiming that there was a conflict of interest. There was no way, he argued, that Marlena Alva could continue as Gary's attorney since the public defender's office was also representing the two jailhouse informants. A private attorney, known as a conflict attorney, would be handpicked for the case. It turned out to be Lawrence Letus whom I understand was in way over his head. Actually, I am being kind. I spoke with people who knew Letus, now deceased, including his former partner, and they said he had a drinking problem 
and lived above the bar he owned. Yes, and I'll tell you right now, if I would have had Mar Marlena Alva as my attorney for the whole trial, I would have never been convicted. What happened? She started filing left and right on uh, things against the dog and all that. And two days later, they came up talking about, oh, we're taking her away from you, uh, conflict of interest. I said, I've got no conflict of interest with this lady. She's the best thing I've ever heard of. They said, oh, we're taking her away. Uh, John Dean Moxley stood up in the courtroom and said, Your Honor, I'll make sure Mr. Bennett gets a good lawyer. The judge kind of laughed and said, no, I think I better do that. I know that there was a spoiler in there, but I'm sure most of you have already figured out that Gary is the man who has spent the last 33 years in prison. But more on that later. When Gary told me the story of how he wound up with a new attorney, again, the hairs on my neck went straight up. Because I've heard all this before. John Preston, the dog handler, the use of jailhouse informants, and then a hand-picked attorney who wouldn't really challenge much. I asked William Dillon about it. He spent 28 years in prison for a murder that he did not commit before he was exonerated by DNA and the real killers were identified. To me, the reason why I took such a notice of Gary's case was how close and similar it was in proximity to my case. It's almost utterly amazing if people would just take a look at the way they did my case and the same things happened in my case and same all natural events for conviction happened in his just like they did in mine and mine were absolutely false in every way and I'm quite sure that Gary at least deserves the opportunity to show that they were false. Well and why don't we just um, examine each one of those things the lawyers he says that he had a great lawyer by the name of um, you know I think it's Marlena Alva from the public defender's office she's now a judge but when the prosecutors um, enlisted the help of two quote-unquote jailhouse informants from the county jail, she had to be excused because her office was representing them, and so they gave him a hand-picked lawyer that turned out to be Lawrence Sleetis, who was not up to the task. Something similar happened to you, right? I did as well. Something exactly the same happened to me. I had a, a it was a public defender, but let me tell you, he was all heart, and he says, they don't have anything here. He said, just relax, we'll get through this. And the very next day, I was taken and put in a, put in a single cell when I was in population with like 30 men in a 17-man cell. They put me in a single cell and then told me that I didn't have that attorney anymore, that they would appoint me an attorney because of conflict of interest, whom they said a man said I confessed to him in that cell that night. So it was a conflict of interest with the public defender's office, so they were going to give me another attorney. Which inclined, they gave me Frank Clark, who had been disbarred, was a drunk, and was also a friend of theirs who had been proffering uh, a sense of, I need some money. Oh, I, I feel like I've, I have heard this story before with, you know, just speaking with Gary, his lawyer um, owned a bar, and I guess he was known for his drinking um, as well. Wow. Like Gary, the focus was put on William Dillon right from the start. But it's all too similar, like the same thing with Gary. There's all these little patterns. It's a pattern program, John. That's all it really is. It's a pattern. If everybody would just stop and take a look at all these cases and how the M.O., just like a criminal has an M.O., well, the same thing with these cases. They all have M.O.s and they all have certain ways that they make and create evidence to make these people 
look like they're guilty of crimes they did not commit. And it's easily done, and people won't stop and take a look at it. When you're talking about Gary, I mean, Gary's been in prison now for 30-something years. My point is, Gary has dwindled from, from the man he went in prison, has dwindled mentally now to somebody that's, that's, that's tormented. If you, if you look at Gary's picture going in and look at Gary's picture now, you can just look right into his eyes and see the torment that is in his face. You're not going to tell me that this whole case is not surrounded by just conveniently tormenting a young kid. That's what they did to us. They took young kids, they were easy to do, we were easy to throw away, and they just took and they threw us away. And now society won't, won't try to correct the problem. In William Dillon's case, it's not real clear what the motive was to pin the crime on him. Sure, he was a pot-smoking, occasionally employed beach bum, but a murderer? In fact, the jailhouse informant in his case, Roger Dale Chapman, recently testified before the Florida legislature that he lied to help put Dylan away and that he was told what to say. In Gary's case, things may not be so clear cut. Remember, the police in Palm Bay knew about his mental issues, the suicide attempts, the fire he set, and his attraction to little girls. Maybe in their minds, even if they did not believe he killed Helen Nardi, maybe they simply believed it was only a matter of time. Detective Robert Swartz wrote that initial report of the fire and Gary's admission of having feelings for little children in 1976. I found a note between Swartz and medical personnel where Swartz expresses concern about Gary's admission of being attracted to little girls and was trying to get him help. In the note, Swartz claims he would feel to blame if Gary was to act on his impulses. Why is this important now? Well, remember the polygraph test administered by Phil Sellers who worked for the state attorney's office? Well, he said that Gary had passed the test. And this is the part of the case that I find really troubling. Well, you know, one of the things I find yeah, really okay. troubling is that you went for this polygraph. Yes. You pass it. Yes. And then the Palm Bay police say, well, we want somebody else to look at it. No. Uh... Leroy Dunning, no, Leroy Dunning did that on his own. He did. He said, uh, you got a copy of that. I won't want a copy of it. And he took it and he had it, one of his own police sergeants read it who said, oh, he failed. The sergeant who looked at it and said he failed was none other than Bob Swartz, the same man who was worried that Gary would act on his impulses, on his attraction to little girls. So Swartz makes the third Palm Bay detective who previously had interaction with Gary Remember, Leroy Dunning was the first to respond to Gary's home after the fire, about seven years before Helen was murdered. And Lieutenant Richard Adams, well, he knew Gary as well. I knew his father, I knew his mother, and I knew of Gary because of his uh, criminal activity, the things he was involved in as a juvenile. I never arrested him or uh, had any involvement in an arrest except uh, during the courses of some of the arrests that some of the officers investigators would come in and talk about him. Okay. And um, how did you know his parents? Were they in trouble or...? Um, mostly interacting with Gary as a juvenile. They would come down and uh, pick him up and uh, working in that area as a patrolman. Uh, uh, years previously I'd interacted with uh, both his mother and father. Not extensively, just as a, uh, an officer. So I knew of him. The cops knew him. 
they knew he had some problems. They also knew that one time he pulled a toy gun on a police officer, hoping for a suicide by a cop. They knew he had set a fire. They knew of his attraction to little girls. Had he just become the easy target? Someone to blame? Were the cops so wary of what he might do that they couldn't see past or refused to see past any suggestion that he might be innocent? Because remember, and this is what really sticks out in this case, he volunteered for and passed a polygraph. He volunteered for and passed a rape test kit. There were no traces of crime or blood anywhere on his clothes. There were others who were sexually involved with Helen and who may have had a motive. What's interesting as well was one of the earliest newspaper clips about the murder I found contained a comment from a law enforcement officer who wondered whether Helen's murder was somehow tied to the murder of Rita Koza in nearby West Melbourne. She was about the same age as Helen and was brutally murdered inside her home. It was never brought up again at least not in the press, and Rita Koza's death remains unsolved to this day. Despite all that, the jury returned after only a few hours with its verdict. Guilty. Gary's lawyer, the one handpicked by the state, never called one witness to refute the dog handler malarkey. Gary's lawyer never called one witness to be able to bring up the sexual relations between Nardi and her son-in-law. He never called his own palm print expert. The terrible job of representation by Letus really raised a red flag for Paul Costellaro, the attorney for Centurion Ministries. We were kind of somewhat appalled by the representation he received. You know, that, that it didn't seem like it was... Um, it was brutal. Yeah, it was effective in any way. I mean, it just didn't seem like the person cared. It- the entire trial lasted only a few days. By contrast, I have covered murder trials where the jury selection lasted longer than that. Now, I'm going to put it to you straight out. How long do you normally, just normally, think that it should take to pick a 12-man jury in a premeditated first-degree murder trial where a man is pleading not guilty in the state seeking the death penalty? I've seen days, almost a week. Try two hours. Two hours. This is on the morning of the 3rd. My trial started on the afternoon of the 3rd. I was found guilty on the 5th, sentenced on the 6th, and in the Lake Butler on the 13th. Holy smokes. Holy smokes. I'm going to put it in this plain English or plain, plain prison, prison English. I got screwed so bad by the train that I didn't even get a chance to see the caboose. That's how railroaded I got. It would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. It would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast, Gary's continued fight to prove his innocence, the appeals, the suicide attempts, and the dreams. Oh, it's, it's devastating. It's, you know, you, you get into it deep and you just want to cry. When I go see him, you know, he, he looks horrible. Um, I know they're in prison for a reason, but they're not, you know, in my opinion, they're not treated right in prison. It's heartbreaking, you know, knowing that I'm leaving and, and what goes through his mind every time we leave and he stays. That's all for now. 
Be sure to click subscribe in the iTunes or Google Play Store or follow in the Stitcher Radio app so that you never miss an episode. I'm news columnist John A. Torres. You can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on the case and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Thanks again for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Murder on the Space Coast is written and reported by John A. Torres. The editor is Mara Bellaby. The producer is Rob Landers.